good to see you all today. You know how if you find something out, some news or something, you can't wait to tell somebody, and you're just waiting the first person you know to come to you so you can tell them? Well, that's how I've been feeling pretty much all week. Uh, I believe God's got something to say to us this morning, and uh, it's, it's some really, really good news. So I hope you're, you're ready for it. Uh, you're open to receive what it is the Lord has for us. This morning, we're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, won't you turn there? We're going to be reading the text in Judges chapter 3. But before we do, I want to kind of set the stage as to what we're going to be reading here. So when Moses died, Joshua took over in leading the people of God into the promised land. The people were divided into their 12 tribes, and each one was to take uh, possession of a certain area of the land. Now, to do that, God told them that they had to completely wipe out whatever people they found when they got there. Now, I know that sounds pretty cruel, but there's a very good reason why God told them to do that. But for at first, they do a pretty good job of this. They're going in, they're doing what God said, they're starting to take possession, but then Joshua eventually dies, and the people are left without a leader. And so everything begins to go downhill pretty fast after that. They first start sparing many of these people that were inhabiting the land that God gave to them. And then we quickly see why God told them to slaughter them in the first place. As God's people, he told them that they were to be set apart. They were to be different from everyone else on earth, to be his representatives. But when they allowed these other cultures to to live, they started to be influenced by them. And then were seduced into uh, following and worshiping their false gods. And so it, it distorted God's image that he was trying to reflect through these people. And so that's why it was such a big deal to wipe these people out because God's image, his glory is a very, very big deal. And so for anything to distort that or come against that, God said, I can't have it. We just cannot have that. In verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served other gods. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hand of their enemy. And this, of course, is symbolic of sin. You can't manage it. You have to utterly destroy it. If you let just a little in, it's going to take control of a whole lot. You can't play with it. You can't uh, see just how far that you can go with it and, and promise yourself you're not going to go any further. You have to kill it dead because if you don't, it's going to end up killing you. So that's what we see here and why God was telling them to do that. So here in chapter 3, the people have been oppressed for eight years and they start crying out to God for help. We're going to pick up in verse 9 and find out what happens next. So let's all stand in honor of God's word this morning. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 9, it says, When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands so that he prevailed over 
the king. Then the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for your word and the message that you have for us in this this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and and open our eyes to see the truth that you are going to reveal. Jesus, that we would see you as, as you truly are and know what it means, God, to be your people, to belong to you. Lord, I pray that any lies that we have believing from the enemy, God, those are just dispelled this morning. And Lord, we stand in truth and we're transformed by it for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the main tactics that Satan uses to try to get us to, uh, to keep us from fully trusting God, to question him and his goodness, and to keep us from experiencing the abundant life that has been provided for us in Jesus, his tactic is to twist truth. And make it appear to be as something that it's not. He'll take something good, something that God designed as good, and he'll distort it and he'll twist it and and make us think that it's bad. Uh, One example of this is the rainbow. I mean, something that God designed as a sign of his good and faithful covenant that he made with his people. But what do people now associate a rainbow with? The homosexual agenda. Another example would be the concept of submission. God designed submission to be something that leads us into absolute pure joy. But Satan has twisted that and deceived so many people into believing that submission is a bad thing and it should be avoided at all costs. Another thing that he has done this with is what we're going to be looking at today and that is the whole idea of judgment. Just the word itself, judgment, takes a negative connotation in our culture today. Nobody wants to be judged. And if anybody comes across as being judgmental of somebody else, then they are fiercely attacked for that. And with everyone having such thin skin these days, calling anything out as being wrong or expressing an opinion that's different than somebody else's, you're going to be accused of judging them. And this seems to be the common mantra of this younger generation. Don't judge me. Now I hear from so many parents just expressing their frustration with their teenagers. And they'll say, all I do is ask them to simply clean their room. And the response I get from that is, you're judging me. It's ridiculous. But where does that even come from, this this fear of judgment? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from an orphan mentality that believes I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy of love and acceptance, I'm always rejected, that there is something inherently wrong with me. Because if you think that something's wrong with you, you are not going to want to be judged because you know what the verdict of that judgment is going to be. And that's actually a good thing to be aware of if you don't know Christ. 
Apart from Jesus, we are orphans, separated from the Father, and realizing that there is something inherently wrong with you that, that caused that orphanity, realizing that there's a reason behind that is the first step in making it right. Jesus is the only way. He is the only hope for the orphan. And once you're brought into relationship with the Father through faith in Jesus, you are no longer an orphan, but a favored son and daughter. And so we shouldn't have that orphan mentality any longer. But the sad truth is that many Christians today are still living like orphans, even though they're not. Because Satan is doing everything he can to make us believe that we are. Even though, even though that he knows, that Satan knows that we are in Christ and that nothing is ever going to change that, he wants to distort what being in Christ looks like. And he doesn't want anyone else to know the greatness of belonging to God. And the best way he can do that is to convince us that we're still orphans, that we're still not good enough, rejected, all that things to get us to believe that we're anything less than what we are in Jesus. So, so we still struggle with that same mentality. Not worthy of acceptance and love. Something's wrong with us. We're guilty. And if we believe that, then the word judgment is not going to be a very good word to our ears at all. Because no one looks forward to being judged when you know that you're guilty. Right? An orphan mentality will also... Equate judgment with punishment every time. So we don't like that word judgment because we automatically think, well, that means punishment. Because believes that's what it deserves. David, King David wrote a lot about God's judgment in the book of Psalms. And it's funny because the way that he describes God's judgment doesn't sound anything like something that we should be afraid of. Or try to avoid it all. Now you've got to remember that that David saw something that very few people were able to see at that time. God allowed him to see the salvation that was coming with Jesus. And so many of the things that he wrote in Psalms were expressions of that. He was looking forward to what God was going to do in Jesus. And here's some of what he said. Psalm 48, 11, he says, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Psalm 72, 1, give the king your judgments and your righteousness to the king's son. So he's asking for these two things because he knows they are good, righteousness and judgment. Psalm 97, 8, the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. Psalm 105.5, remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels, and the judgments uttered by his mouth. These are good things he's telling us to remember. Psalm 119.7, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn of your righteous judgments. These are not the words of an orphan. These are the words of a son who knows what it means to belong to the father who is the ultimate judge. And it would seem odd for David to speak about judgment in these kinds of terms, especially considering some of the things that David had done. 
I mean, he slept with another man's wife and put her husband on the front lines of battle to make sure that he would be killed so that he could have her for himself. And so David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And yet here he is speaking of the goodness of God's judgments. Why? Because David wasn't looking at his sin. He was looking at Jesus. I believe too many people, too, too many of us just spend too much time focused on, worried about, and looking at our sin. And if you keep doing that, you are going to see the judgment of God as a very bad thing. God doesn't want us to focus on our sin because Jesus came and took care of that already. What he wants us to focus on is Jesus. Because like the song says... Put your eyes on Jesus, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The best illustration of God's judgment for his people, the kind that David talked about in the Psalms, is the book of Judges. So back to our original text. The people are now in the land that God promised them, but they are unable to take full possession of their inheritance. Now think about that. They are in the land that God promised them. They have arrived, but they're unable to take full possession of their inheritance. Sounds a lot like some of the people that I just described. How many people, even though they're saved, still living like orphans. The promised land in the Old Testament was a metaphor looking forward to the salvation In Jesus. When you are in Christ, you are in the promised land that was symbolized as Israel in the Old Testament. Being in Christ but living like an orphan is being in the land but unable to take full possession of your inheritance. What it means to be a full fledged favored son and daughter of the Father. The people here in Judges couldn't take full possession because they disobeyed God. They worshipped false idols. They were influenced by the ways and traditions of these heathen cultures. They were stubborn. They were rebellious. They were self-centered. And so God is going to send judges to them. Uh Uh-oh. That can't be good, can it? But these were his people whom he made a covenant with. And so if his judgment meant giving these people what they deserved, then they wouldn't be his people anymore, and his covenant would be broken. Let's look closer at the text here. First, he raises up the first judge, Othniel. Look at verse 9 again. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel. What these people deserved was not for God to send a deliverer. They deserved for him to send a punisher, an executioner. But no, he sent them a deliverer. Now keep in mind, all these judges here were foreshadows of Jesus. And right off the bat, we begin to see some parallels here. The first one is that he calls Othniel, the first judge, a deliverer. 2 Corinthians 1.10 says of Jesus, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And then look what it says next about Othniel in verse 10. 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters the synagogue, and a scroll is handed to him. He opens up, and he reads from the book of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed. Othniel delivers the people from their enemies, and they live in peace for 40 years. But then Othniel dies, and the people rebel, and they do evil again. And so begins an ongoing pattern all throughout the book of Judges. A judge is raised up. He delivers the people, they live in peace, the judge dies, the people rebel, live in evil again, get back in captivity, they cry out to God, he raises up another judge who saves the people, they live in peace, the judge dies, they rebel again, they're back in captivity, on and on and on is this constant pattern of rebellion and oppression. We read that and we stand amazed at the patience and the faithfulness of God to his people. He keeps putting up with them. He keeps saving them despite their constant rebellion. Why does he do this? Because these were his people whom he loved madly. And he made a promise to them that could not be rescinded. No matter what they did. Now I'm going to describe some of these main judges that God raised up here. And I want you to pay attention to how each of these were like little clues and hints that God was given about what he was going to do through Jesus and how they were pointing to him. So, we already saw Othniel called a deliverer whom the Spirit of the Lord came upon like Jesus. Next was Ehud, and he was also called a deliverer. Now, he didn't lead the people into some big battle like most of the uh, judges did. He did something even more brave and direct. He was sent to the king of Moab in order to pay tribute on behalf of the Israelites. But before he went and did that, he took a sword and he fastened it up against his leg to hide it under his cloak. And so he goes into the king's chamber to pay the tribute. And he tells the king that he has a secret message for him. And so the king tells everybody else to get out of the room. So it's just he and Ehud. So Ehud comes up to him to give him the message. And he takes the sword out from against his leg. And he thrusts it into the belly of the king. And the king was this big obese man. Because it says the fat of his belly just kind of sucked that whole sword up in there. I mean the whole hilt and all just disappeared into his belly. And so Ehud leaves him there and and he dies I mean you should go back and read that story because it is very interesting and very graphic as well I'm not going to get into all that but he killed the king and then he he got away and so what does that crazy story tell us about Jesus well it tells us that Jesus is no passive peacenik He is a brave warrior who doesn't just address the symptoms of sin, but he went directly to the source of it and cut out the root of it. And he defeated Satan and stripped him of his power to be able to condemn us anymore. He is the fierce warrior who fights on our behalf. 
Shamgar was a judge who killed 600 men all by himself with nothing but an ox goad, which is basically a long staff. He killed 600 men with a long stick. So he brought a huge victory with something that no one would have ever thought possible, a stick. Just like Jesus brought a huge victory with something that no one would have ever thought possible, a Roman cross. Deborah was a female judge who was also a prophet. Gideon, you may remember the story of Gideon from Sunday school. The Bible says that Gideon was the youngest in his family, and his family was the very least in his tribe. Yet the angel of the Lord addressed him as a valiant warrior. When the people found out Jesus was from Nazareth, they scoffed, and they said things sarcastically like, Can anything good come from Nazareth? So like Gideon, Jesus was an unlikely hero. Of course, Gideon is told by God to lead the army of Israel into battle. And he keeps dwindling his men down to just a handful against just a sea of enemy soldiers. No way they can defeat him. And he tells them to get around the camp. But instead of telling them to attack with swords, he tells them just to blow trumpets and break jars. That's all they did. And it scared the enemy down below so bad, they went into confusion and just began hacking at anything in sight and killed each other. And so, like Gideon, Jesus was the unlikely hero who defeated the enemy, not by the might of men, but by the power of God. Jephthah was a judge who led the people to another victorious battle. And in the excitement and all the adrenaline rush of this big victory, he just flippantly makes a vow that when I return home, whatever comes out and greets me first, I'm going to offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord, as an offering to him. Now, of course, he was assuming that one of his animals was going to run out and meet him first. Maybe he had a dog like some of you do, that when you come home, that dog's the first thing that greets you before your wife or kids or anybody else. Maybe that's what Jephthah had to to make a vow like that. But to his utter shock and amazement, when he gets home, his only child, his virgin daughter, is the one who first greets him. And his heart just sinks. His daughter finds out about this vow that he made, and so she willingly offered herself to be sacrificed because her dad couldn't go back on his vow. And so in Jephthah, we see a father who sacrificed his only child in order to fulfill a promise and a child who was willing to be sacrificed for the honor of the father. Sound familiar? That's the gospel. Of course, everyone knows the story of Samson. What you don't often hear in Samson's story is that before he was born, what the Bible calls the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, appeared to Samson's parents and announced that they were going to have a son after they had been barren, childless for a long time, and that this son was going to do great and mighty things. And if you pay attention to that, you'll see that this angel was actually Jesus himself, Who appeared to them. Samson's dad asked the angel his name. And the angel said why do you ask me my name. For it is incomprehensible. 
No angel would have said that about his name. Later on, they watched the angel ascend to heaven, and Samson's dad realized who it was, and he said, Surely we are now going to die because we have seen God. And in that text there in Judges 13, whenever it's referring to this angel of the Lord, every pronoun that refers to it is capitalized. The he is capitalized. The Bible doesn't do that anywhere else, only except for when it's referring to God the Father, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. It doesn't capitalize pronouns for just regular angels. And so Samson wasn't just a type or a shadow of Jesus. He didn't just symbolize him. Jesus himself literally interjects himself into the story of Samson. And so Samson is born and he becomes famous for his strength. He kills a male lion with just his bare hands. He slaughters a thousand Philistine soldiers with just the jawbone of a donkey. There are many parallels between Samson's story and the gospel, but there's one part that I believe exemplifies it the most. The Philistines have been trying to capture Samson for a long time because he was just a thorn in their side, constantly harassing them, and they finally do catch him only because he is betrayed by someone close to him, just like Jesus was. And so they gouge out his eyes, they keep him in captivity for a while, and then all the, the big wigs and of the Philistines, the leaders, they're going to have this big party. And all the, the most important people in the land were going to come to it. And so they have it in this huge palace where there's 3,000 of the most important people in the land gathered there. And they call for Samson to be brought to the party so they could be amused by him. So he could just be there for their uh, sick entertainment. This trophy that they had to display and brag about the capture of. And so they chain him between the two pillars, the two main pillars that supported this building. And Samson asks God for one last surge of strength. And he pushes against the pillars, which causes the building to fall and everyone dies. And here's my favorite part of the story and how it points to Jesus. Judges 16.30 says this. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and the people who were in it. Let me die with the Philistines. Let me die with the enemy of my people. Let my death mean also the death of the enemy of my people. Jesus died with the enemy of his people. Sin. His death brought about the death of of sin's curse over your life anymore. And then look at the last line of that verse. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. When Jesus was here on earth, he healed a lot of people. He set a lot of people free from oppression, guilt, and condemnation. But nothing that he did in his life came close to what he accomplished in his death. His death brought about the healing of so many more people. His death brought about the freedom of so many more people than he did in his life. 
And so all of these judges are foreshadows of Jesus, the ultimate judge. But shadows are always incomplete and inadequate. None of them were able to break the cycle of idolatry and oppression. None of them were able to lead the people into their full possession of their inheritance. But they were all pointing to the one who does finally and decisively break the cycle of idolatry and oppression. The one who does lead his people into the full possession of their inheritance, Jesus Christ. He is the complete fulfillment of the book of Judges. The lesson in Judges is not, you better quit being rebellious like the Israelites kept doing. You better quit being as stubborn as they were. No, the lesson is, Jesus is patient and he is faithful and he has broken the cycle of rebellion and oppression in your life. The book of Judges shows us that that God's judgment for his people, judgment for God's people means his grace in action. His grace in action, giving us what we don't deserve. That's what we see in Judges. It's not a bad thing. It's not some negative thing that we need to be fearful of or try to avoid. It is his unbelievable, unmatched grace over the lives of his people. To be in Christ means you no longer have to live like an orphan, fearful that God's going to judge you. Fearful of that judgment because of your guilt. Listen, your guilt died with Jesus. Your guilt died with Jesus on the cross. Your sin was judged. And Jesus took that sentence upon himself so that you could be restored as a favored son and daughter. And just delight in the love of the Father. In his death, he also judged Satan. And he absolutely stripped him of his power to be able to condemn you anymore. That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. How much? None. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, there is a judgment of God that is still yet to come. And it'll be for all of those who continually rejected his offer of mercy. And for them, it will not be good. But even now, he is restraining his wrath, being patient as his offer goes out. But when that offer ends, so will his patience and his judgment will fall. But for those of us who have received his mercy through faith in Jesus, folks, our judgment has already been declared. It's already been declared. You know what the verdict was? Innocent, free, paid in full, requirement met with that judgment never to be taken back, altered, or changed in any way. 
And so every time Satan tries to attack you with the lies and the false accusations, trying to convince you that you're still an orphan, that you're not good enough, that you haven't done enough, you remind him of God's judgment that has already been declared, that you are free, you are innocent, and he is defeated and no longer has the power to condemn you. I want to close by reading another psalm that David wrote where he talks about God's judgment again. You probably, I'm sure, heard this before. But this whole context is all about what we have in Christ. David was looking ahead, looking forward to the salvation that would come in Jesus and and what it means to be God's people under his judgment. Listen to this, or you can follow along up on the screen. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion who satisfies your years, your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Praise God for that. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear or revere him. As far as the east is from the west. Is that a distance that can be measured? No. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions, our sin from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, on those who belong to him. That would be a real good text to memorize for the next time Satan tries to condemn you trying to convince you that you're still just a sorry orphan. That's God's judgment on your life right there. And there is joy in God's judgment for his people. Let's pray. Lord, just like the song we sang a while ago, you are a good, good father. Lord, there is nothing about you that we as your people should be afraid of. God, I know that there are so many in this room right now who still struggle with those thoughts of inadequacy and guilt. constantly bombarded with those lies of condemnation from the enemy. 
Lord, I pray right now by your spirit you would just dispel those lies completely. Lord, that your verdict of grace would sink deep down into their hearts. Lord, that you would renew their mind, wash it clean and purified in the goodness of your word, your truth. Lord, because of the judgment that we are under as your people, God, I pray that we would see that and use it as the motivation to continually just kill sin that keeps trying to attack us and seduce us and draw us away from who we are in you. Lord, what an incredible thing to think that we are your people that you are madly in love with, your people that you made a covenant. God, you allowed us the benefits of the covenant that you have made. That you cannot go back on that. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you, God, to make these truths real to us. To where we're not just being in intellectual agreement with them, but Lord, we're truly believing them with all our heart to where it just affects the way that we live and everything that we do. Lord, let us see the goodness of your judgment poured out on us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us be changed by it. In your name I pray. Amen.